Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 15, that'll be our sermon text this morning. Revelation 15, and as is our custom, if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word, Revelation 15, verses 1 through 8. John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to you and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until uh, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all scripture is given by you. It's breathed out by you and is profitable uh, for teaching, correction, rebuke, and, and training in righteousness that your people might be uh, mature and fully equipped for every good work that you would have us to do. We ask that you would work on us by your spirit as always, that you would grant unto us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, we're up to chapter 15 in our study through Revelation. We've been going through it mainly chapter by chapter, but verse by verse. Chapter 8, you might have noticed, is a rather short chapter. It's the shortest chapter in the entire book. And it's, sometimes it's hard to keep the whole book in mind as you go through it, even bit by bit or chapter by chapter. And if you remember back in chapter 12, John is actually picking up here from where he left off, in, so to speak, in chapter 12. In that chapter, you might remember, he also there talked about two great signs that he saw in heaven. One was a pregnant woman about to give birth in Revelation 12, 1 to 2. And that was a picture in some sense of, of Mary and another sense of, of the nation of Israel, that God had used them to bring forth the Messiah. And the other great sign in heaven that he saw in verse 3 of that chapter was a great red dragon who was trying to destroy the child. He was trying to prevent that child from being born. That's You could say that that brief vision in, in Revelation 12 is kind of a picture, a summary of your entire Old Testament. That the entire Old Testament was, in a, in a, in a, in a sense the story of Satan trying to stop the birth of the Redeemer from coming to pass. When you read Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, that was the first instance, uh, the first shot in that war. Remember remember in chapter 3, after the fall of God, in in Genesis 3.15, 
promised uh, that there was going to be this uh, enmity between the, the woman and the serpent and between his seed and her seed, singular, her offspring, not Adam's offspring, her offspring. Well, who is that offspring ultimately? It's Christ, but he came through that line, that line. And what happened in Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed Abel. And what does the New Testament tell us? Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he, Cain, was of the evil one. John is saying that Genesis 4 story, that first murder, was the first fight or the first uh, skirmish in that battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of of the serpent. So Gen- uh, Revelation, rather, chapter 12, that vision is kind of a picture, a summary of that whole story throughout the entire Old Testament. All the persecution of, of God's people, of the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament was really provoked by Satan trying to stop that seed, that offspring, the Messiah himself, from being born for our salvation. And that vision, uh, like many of the cycles of visions you see in the book of Revelation that we sometimes have difficulty understanding, is really, they're meant to be understood as kind of encompassing all of redemptive history, all of the history of, of God's church, everything that led up to the birth of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, on the third day, everything subsequent to that, everything from Jesus' death and resurrection to our day, continuing on until the day that Christ returned, uh, is the story of that dragon, the great dragon Satan, having failed to stop the coming of Christ in his kingdom. Uh, Genesis twelve seventeen says that the dragon, quote, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That, that's the church. That's the bad news is that's you. That's me. And on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So really all of redemptive history, all of the history of the church in this world has been and really continues to be until this day the outworking of that war, that holy war between Satan on the people of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens, what's also happening? You have Satan trying to stop what Christ is doing. He can't do that. Jesus says that he's building his church and the gates of hell are, are unable to prevail. They cannot prevail against them. That's what you're seeing in Revelation. You see Jesus in these form of these visions building his church, Satan not being able to prevail, the gates of hell not being able to prevail against what Christ is doing. Well, here in chapter 15, John says he sees another great sign uh, in, in heaven. He says in verse 1 that he saw, quote, another sign in heaven, great and amazing, And what was that sign? It wasn't a pregnant woman. It wasn't a dragon. He says he saw, quote, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, I've already mentioned it, but maybe you noticed as I was reading through it, Revelation 15 is filled with, as short as it is, imagery from the Exodus. Imagery from the Exodus. It's not an accident. We're supposed to catch that hint. We're supposed to see that the hints of the Exodus in this, in this chapter. So the Exodus from, from Egypt, which as I said before was the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament, uh, was also a type or a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. He is the greater Moses. What do you see the, what do the angels have in this chapter? What does it mention that they have? Golden bowls, uh, is one thing, but it mentions seven angels with seven Plagues. When you hear plagues, biblically, what do you think of? You probably think of the Exodus. How many plagues were there in Moses' day when God sent him to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt? There were ten. Well, in, in Revelation 15, there are seven. And what does the number seven 
often significant of in, in the book of Revelation and in, in the scripture in general. Seven is kind of the number of completeness. The number of completeness. And so these seven plagues, it's a picture of the fullness of God's wrath being poured out, that his wrath is being poured out or going to be poured out in a complete fashion. Just as the people of Israel were, to, were, were saved, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt by this great act of divine judgment and power in that splitting of the Red Sea, even so the Lord is going to deliver his people by means of another act or acts of divine judgment, pictured as plagues here in this chapter against his, his enemies. You know, but, you know, thinking about all this, you know, our, this chapter, it, it bookends with, with mentions of God's wrath being fulfilled and finished. And the, the following chapter, chapter 16, kind of goes through the seven plagues, those seven bowls being poured out. But right in the midst of chapter 15, you see something you might not have expected. Maybe we should have expected it because it's happening all through the book of Revelation so far. But what do you see? You see God's redeemed people, those, quote, verse 2, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. And, and what are they, or what are we, what are they doing there in this vision? They're singing. They're singing and they have harps, the harps of God. They're singing, he says in verse 3, the song of Moses, the servant of God. That's an allusion back to Exodus chapter 14 and 15. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now this, this song, much like the song of Moses found in that chapter we read earlier in the service, what does this song like that song do? It celebrates and praises God for his majesty and power in his great act of delivering his people and judging their enemies in due time. Just like the people of Israel sang the song of Moses and celebrated God's mighty act of judgment, and that mighty act of judgment was also their salvation from slavery. God, you know, very often in scripture, God saves his people by means of an act of powerful judgment upon his enemies. That's, that's, that's been a theme you'll see all through Scripture. Well, that's what you see the saints here in heaven doing in Revelation chapter 15. In the midst, it's kind of a break in the action. He mentions the wrath of God, and then it's this, this worship service in heaven where God's people are singing. Now, God still saves his people by an act of judgment and acts of judgment in history. It's what he's going to do on the last day at Christ's return. And so God's people can sing praise to God and to the Lamb, even in time of trial and tribulation. That's what Revelation was written for. You know, I I say this very often as we go through this book, but I think it's something we have to hear over and over again. Revelation is written to comfort and encourage the people of God in time of trial and tribulation, in time of suffering. You know, there are many places in our day, not just ancient history, where Christians are persecuted violently for the faith. That to be baptized and profess the name of Christ can be in an earthly sense, a death sentence. You know, this, 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 this hatred that, that, the, that the serpent has, that Satan has against God's people, still goes on. He, can't, he couldn't stop Christ, so who does he make war on, according to Revelation 12? The rest of her offspring, God's people. He still fights against us. And so this book of Revelation is not written, if you're a Christian and you read Revelation, it's not written to scare you. The exact opposite is what it's written for. If you read Revelation and you're frightened and you're a Christian, you're reading it wrong. I know it's not proper grammar. You're not reading it correctly. It's written to encourage you. It's written to strengthen you in time of trial 
and tribulation. And so here in chapter 15, uh, we're taught that God's people can sing praise to our God, even in time of tribulation and trial. You know, one day in heaven, we're all going to sing such praise to God for his amazing deeds and saving us from our sins and from all of our enemies. Now, this this chapter, chapter 15, it teaches us that God is going to be praised by his redeemed people. What we do here on Sunday mornings is kind of choir practice for heaven. We don't sing great here. We'll sing better in glory. Uh, But God is even to be praised. I think this chapter teaches it explicitly. God is even to be praised in his acts of judgment. Now, very often, the judgments of God in this world, and especially at the end of the age, those things can make us very uncomfortable to talk about. We don't want to be those fire and brimstone, you know, Christians, uh, the typical, you think of the old Southern Baptist preachers and things. People mock that kind of a thing. And and it makes us, we don't want to be associated with that. Sometimes the idea of God's judgments in history, which he does do, and his judgment at the end of the age, the wrath of God, we sometimes can be tempted to be kind of feel embarrassed about those things. Well, we shouldn't be. Revelation 15, which bookends with mentions of God's wrath being fulfilled, the center of the passage is what? Praise. God is to be glorified and praised for his acts of judgment, and even for his wrath, because his wrath is a holy and just and pure wrath. The judge of all the earth always does what's right. And his judgments are to be praised as much as his mercy is as well. So I'd like to look at a few things in our text. The first thing is the sea of glass mentioned in our text. John tells us of this great amazing sign in heaven of the seven angels and seven plagues, which are the last in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he kind of changes gears, or the vision he sees sort of changes gears. In verse 2 he says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So he sees, he doesn't see a sea of glass. He sees something that resembles a sea made of glass mingled with fire. Now, in the scriptures, the the sea, the ocean, is often a, a picture or a symbol of chaos and danger. In the book of Genesis, before God created everything, what does it say? It says that you know the, the earth was formless and void, and, the, and the, the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. It's a picture of kind of chaos, and God brings order out of out of the chaos. When you think of the end of the book of Revelation, we're not there yet. One of the things it mentions, and maybe you've read this and thought, why does it say that? It mentions there's no more sea. Why is that? Well, there's no more, it's all order now. There's no chaos, there's no danger. The sea is often a picture of chaos and danger in the scriptures. And you think of the story of, think of the stories in the Bible you've read, the story of Jonah. What's the, the most exciting part or the most, uh, you know, amazing part of Jonah in some ways is this sea. The storm at sea and seasoned pagan sailors are terrified for their lives uh, and then they throw Jonah overboard at God's command and what happens? It just stops. It's like a sea of glass. Remember Jesus in the back of the boat, and these seasoned fishermen, his disciples, are with him, and a storm comes up on, on the lake, on the sea, and they're terrified for their lives. They think they're going to die. They wake up Jesus. He rebukes the storm, and it goes like glass. And then they wanted to jump out of the boat. They were terrified of Jesus. You know, He was more powerful than the storm. You think of the Exodus, the Red Sea, You know, this great miracle that God did in dividing it, and two, 
you know, Pharaoh, if you don't know the story, Pharaoh and his army is barreling down on them on the one side, and what's on the other side of them? There's nowhere else to go. The, the, the Red Sea is right there like a wall, keeping them there for the slaughter until God does something amazing. He has Moses raise his staff in his hand uh, towards over the sea, and what happens? It splits in two, and it's like a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other, and they march through on dry land to their rescue and salvation. But then what happens? Moses raises his hand over the water again at God's command, and it destroys Pharaoh and his army. It's amazing that that God could do something like that. There was a movie out a number of years ago that tried to. Uh, it was written. It was made by unbelieving people mocking the faith, but they tried to explain the Exodus based on natural causes. They tried to basically get God out of the picture. I, I don't think they were successful in in doing that, um, but. That's, it's, a, it's a great miracle that God did uh, in splitting that sea in two. Now, what does John see here in Revelation 15? He sees a sea of glass mingled with fire, and he sees the victorious saints in heaven, that's you and me one day in Christ, standing beside, or it, you could translate it, standing upon uh, this sea. But the sea is not stormy and chaotic anymore. It's not dangerous anymore. It's glassy. It's perfectly still. Not a wave to be seen. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, Joel Beakey says the following. He writes, That larger perspective will be ours on the last day, for then we will understand what God was doing in our lives, our countries, our churches, and in all the great movements of world history. Then we will see clearly, and God's judgments will be all the more marvelous in our eyes. Have you ever... This is a rhetorical question, I'm sure. But have you ever looked around at, at what's happening in the world, what's happening in your own life, and wondered, what in the world is God doing? Why would God allow whatever it is, a storm, a natural disaster, some untimely death, why would God allow these things to happen? Why does God allow disease and cancer and all these things uh, that that disrupt us and upset us and, and cause us to scratch our heads you know, the, the unbelievers say the same questions, but they do it in a mocking way. Well, if God's all-powerful and if God's all-good, why would he allow such and such? They don't ask that in an honest way, but sometimes we do. Why does Lord, why do you allow this or that to happen in history? You've probably asked that before. But one day when you're in heaven, those of us who have by faith conquered the beast according to the phrase of, the, of our text and the image and its number of its name, those of us who have been saved by the grace of God through faith, you will finally see, for the first time really, all things <laughs> rightly. You'll finally see all things correctly when our faith has become sight and we have rest from our labors and our warfare. You know, you ever go to the beach and it's choppy and you, you kind of look down, you can't see your feet, you know, everything's all you know mucky and everything. You ever go to the beach and it's still and you can walk all the way out to chest-deep water, and you can see your feet. That's kind of what this is like. In this life, we're looking through choppy water. In heaven, we're going to look through a sea of glass. We'll finally have an understanding of what God was doing. We won't have those questions anymore. We'll know that God has done all things well. Then we're finally going to see that God really has, according to Ephesians 1.11, He really has worked all things in accordance with the counsel of His will. And that he has made all things work together for good 
for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. You know, in this life, we have to take that by faith. And I, I'm sure many of you have and, and continue to do that. You say, I know God works all things together for my good in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.28, that he works all things together for my salvation, but it doesn't mean you know how. It doesn't mean that in this life you're necessarily going to see how God is doing that. You might. Sometimes God lets us see at least parts of what he's doing in that way by his kindness and mercy. But on that day, you'll see exactly how God made all things work together for your good. You'll see that no longer by faith, but by sight. You'll know that God has done all things well. And you'll praise God for it, which brings us to the next thing in our text not just the sea of glass, but the song, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Those, though I keep saying them, it's really us as well. In verse 2, they, these, these people have harps in their hands, they're standing by that glassy sea. And look at verses 3 to 4, it says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there's there's singing of the great power and victory of our God in saving his people and saving us and in triumphing over all of our enemies and his. That's that's what this. It's just like the song of Moses back in, in Exodus chapter fifteen. Now, why does it call this song the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? Well, one thing it's doing is it's pointing us back to Exodus. It's showing us that that this vision, even this thing about the plagues, is borrowing images, hearkening back to imagery back from the book of of Exodus. It's, it's pointing us back to that, and it's pointing us back to that great song that we read, the song of deliverance of Israel there at the shore of the Red Sea. And once again, Dr. Beakey writes the following. He says, ultimately, all of our worshipful festivity is focused on Christ. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are not two songs, but one, illustrating once again the unity of the Old and New Testaments and the oneness of all believers in every age in Jesus Christ. It's really one song. The song of Moses was the prototype, uh, or the first verse, you could say, of the song of the Lamb. Both of these songs celebrate God's power in delivering his people from sin and from slavery. Now, you might know that Deuteronomy 18.15, one of the most important prophetic texts in the Old Testament, it promised Moses, before he died, told the people that God was going to raise up for them a prophet like him, from among them and to him they must listen. And the New Testament goes to great detail and to great lengths to tell us that Jesus was that prophet like Moses. Now he's more than a prophet and he's greater a greater prophet than Moses was. Uh, he's the Messiah, he's God's anointed king and the son of God. But just what did, what did Moses do? As the servant of God, God used Moses to deliver the people of Israel from captivity. Well, what did God use his son to do in a greater sense? To deliver his people from a worse slavery. Not just making bricks without straw, but slavery to sin and the evil one. You could say that in a lot of ways the scripture paints Christ as this new Moses as doing a greater exodus. 
breaking the power of sin over us and leading us. You know, the, a lot of things about the Exodus are a picture of your life as a Christian. You cry out to God from the, your slavery and sin. God rescues you, breaks the power of sin over you, redeems you from your slavery. And then in this life, it's kind of the pilgrim that, that wanderings in the wilderness. And what does God do? He provides. He provides, you know, just like he gave them manna from heaven, he gives us, we don't have the Lord's Supper this morning, but he gives us bread from heaven to sustain us, and Christ is the bread from heaven. Just as the people of Israel sang the song of Moses and celebrated God's glorious triumph on their behalf, throwing the horse and the rider into the sea, Exodus 15.1, in the same way we're going to sing a song of the triumph of the Lamb on our behalf, triumphing over all of our enemies, even the evil one himself. And what are we going to praise God and praise the Lamb for in this song, if you look at the song itself? Verse 3, his great and amazing deeds. Think of all the things God has done to save you, especially sending his only begotten son to die in your place, to live in your place, to die in your place and rising him, raising him from the dead. Not only that, but we're going to praise him that his ways are just and true. Again, like that sea of glass, we're going to see and understand what God has done. And we're going to see that his ways in everything have been what? Just and true. No more questions uh, of those things when you're in heaven. We're finally going to see that whatever our God ordained has been right, and that all of his deeds and all of his ways, even his acts of judgment, even his acts of judgment and power in this world have been just and true. You know, we're going to know and confess and sing as the old hymn puts it, that our God doeth all things well. We know that by faith now, then we'll know it by sight. And we'll pray, we're going to praise the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, as being the King of the nations. Verse 3. The King of the nations. In fact, in verse 4, John says uh, that this song says that all nations will come and worship him for his righteous acts have been revealed. All the nations will one day bow the knee to Jesus Christ. We saw last Sunday in Psalm 66, verse 4, that that psalm actually prophesies of all nations coming to worship, all the earth coming to worship and make a joyful noise to the Lord for his awesome deeds. Same thing as we see here in our text. Well, the last thing I want to look at from our text is the seven plagues and the wrath of God being finished. In some ways, you could say that this glimpse into the worship of the Lamb in heaven was kind of a break in the action. We've seen a number of breaks in the action in the book of Revelation. Very often, God is about to say something that's difficult, something about his wrath and his judgment on this earth, and then the text stops, so to speak. The vision changes gears, and it gives us a, a vision of, of the rest of God's people, the rest from our labors that we have in heaven, the worship. You know, Revelation is a book of worship. All through the book, you see the saints singing God's praises, singing God's acts of deliverance, and it's the same way it is uh, in this chapter as well. I think that that worship and singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb was kind of to, to let it focus our attention on what we should think of when we think of God's acts of judgment, even on that judgment on the last day. In verses five through eight, John goes on to tell us about the outpouring of God's wrath that He's going to detail for us in the following chapter, in chapter 16. And again, notice that this chapter in verse 1 and in verse 7 opens and closes with mentions of God's wrath being fulfilled or completed or finished. 
It bookends it with mentions of God's wrath finally being finished. And then in the middle of the passage is this this part where God's people sing his praises for it. Now John speaks of the wrath of God twice there in in the passage, his wrath being poured out and finished in those seven plagues. Notice again, the number seven has the idea of completeness. God's wrath one day will be finally finished and completely poured out. John told us uh, earlier in the book, if you read through the book of Revelation sometime, maybe reread it to kind of refresh your memory of it, but there's there's three different cycles of sevens in visions. One, you see the, the seven seals back in chapters 5 through 7. Remember the scroll of God and the right hand of God, and, and the Lamb is the only one who was worthy to open the scroll and break the seals, and as he broke the seals, each time he broke one, things happened. He, he brought God's will, his decrees to pass, Only Christ has the authority to do that. Then the next thing we saw was seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11. And those trumpets announced God's judgments on this earth. They were the warning, the warning sirens of God's judgment that was and is to come. And then we have lastly here in chapters 15 to 16, another sevenfold vision. Three sets of seven, in a sense, to, to show us about the wrath of God and the judgment of God on this world. And then this tells us here it's seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And being poured out, verse 1 tells us, when those bowls are poured out, he says the wrath of God is what? Finished. There is going to come a day when God does that. Then that word finished, you might know, is the very same word that Jesus uttered on the cross. Right before he breathed his last breath and died and gave up his spirit, he said, it is what? It is finished. The same word is being used there. In John 19.30 it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There on the cross of Jesus Christ on Golgotha, the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29, what did Jesus do? He bore the full brunt of the wrath of God on behalf and in the place of his people. Same word, same idea. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, you want to know what love is, here it is, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How much did God love his redeemed people, That the people he was going to redeem? Well, he loved us enough to send his Son, not just to die, but to die to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that word mean? It means he took the full wrath of God that is owed to us for our sins upon himself. As far as God's redeemed people are concerned, those of us who are in Christ, all who are going to be in Christ someday, Jesus took the full finished wrath of God for our sins upon himself on that cross. That's what propitiation means. It means satisfying the wrath of God in our place. That's what Jesus did to save those of us who are in him by faith. That's what the word propitiation, I know it's it's one of those words we don't use very much, but we probably should use it more. The Bible certainly does. It means that Christ suffered God's wrath in our place, that he took upon himself the very wrath of God for us so that sinners like you and me might be freely forgiven of all of our sin and rebellion against God, that we might be accepted by God as righteous in his holy sight. We're not whole, we're not righteous. How, How can God, who is holy, except you and me as righteous in his sight, only because Christ paid the full price 
of God's wrath for our sins and lived the perfect life that we have not lived. And that is accounted to us by faith. Not only that, but we who were once the children of wrath in Christ are adopted as the children of God in God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what he won and purchased for our salvation. That's why it's a greater exodus than the one even in Exodus chapter 14. Now, for all those who remain unrepentant and outside of Jesus Christ, the Bible's very clear, make no mistake, God's wrath will one day be poured out to the full. It will one day be finished or completed. Those golden bowls that we see in our text and in chapter 16, those golden bowls full of the wrath of God, the the bowls are golden. They're precious. God's not embarrassed by his wrath. We sometimes can be tempted to be so, but we shouldn't be. God's wrath isn't like our wrath. The wrath of man does not produce righteousness, right? We, we get angry the wrong ways about the wrong things because we're prideful and selfish. Well, God's wrath isn't like that at all. God's wrath is holy. It's in a seven golden bowls. And God's wrath one day will be poured out on this world. And God will be magnified and praised even for that, for he is holy, verse 4. Just as God was glorified in his powerful act of judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, even so he's going to be exalted over every hardened sinner who worships and serves Satan and the beast in rebellion against him on that last day. And so I have to ask this morning, where will you be on that great day? Where are you in this text? Where are you in Revelation chapter 15? Are you going to be among that great multitude in heaven praising God for his great power and mercy toward you in Jesus Christ because your Redeemer suffered the wrath of God in your place for your salvation? Or are you still in your sins? Are you still in rebellion against God? Are you still awaiting the wrath of God for your sins to be fulfilled and finished by being poured out on you and the rest of the unrepentant? I hope that is not the case. You can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans three twenty-three to 25, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. None of us deserve it. And what is that gift? God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins by his blood on the cross. All you have to do is to receive that gift by faith and receive Jesus Christ by faith. If you've not yet come to Christ this morning, I ask you to repent of your sins, turn to God by faith in Jesus Christ, and you too will one day be singing and praising the Lamb of God on that great day, as we see here in Revelation 15. Amen.